Hebrews chapter 13 with us this morning. God wrote a book, and every word of it is inspired and given for the equipping of the saints that we might do the work of ministry. So in front of us in the scripture is God's word. Let's read Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, this is God's word. It says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word. If I were to ask you what the Christian life is, what would you say? If I said the Christian life is a life of, what do you fill in the blank with in your head? Maybe you'd say the Christian life is a life of love. Christian life is a life of joy. Christian life is a life of forgiveness. And All those answers would be fine, but I want to put another answer into your mind when we think about the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice, a life of sacrifice. One author says that Christianity is sacrificial through and through. It is founded on the one self-offering of Christ and the offering of his people's praise and property, of their service and their lives. And is caught up into the perfection of his acceptable sacrifice and is accepted in him. Christianity is a sacrificial life through and through. And maybe that's why Jesus had to turn to some of his followers every now and then and and say, are you sure you've counted the cost of following me? He had to turn and, and say, you need to consider what it is to follow me because people have places, homes to lay their head, but, but I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. And maybe you consider the cost. There's sacrifice with following me, and so you would turn and tell them to do that. And the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. But what does that mean for us? What, what kind of sacrifice are we talking about in our lives when we talk about the Christian life being a life of sacrifice? What kind of sacrifices are we to make as Christians? And I think that's what Hebrews chapter 13 speaks to. The Christians are to live a life of sacrifice, and it tells us what our sacrifice is to look like. It's not like Not quite like the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Christians are to sacrifice by going to Jesus outside the camp. You see that early on in the verses that we talk about. Bearing the reproach that Jesus bore and that he endured. Christians are to offer a sacrifice of praise. It's the second sacrifice, I think, that it's listed. And then the last one in verse 16, the Christians are to sacrifice for others by doing good, by sharing what they have with others. The Christian life is a life of of identifying with Jesus and and, and having a life like he has, a life of sacrifice. We're following the lamb that is slain. 
And so our lives are to reflect that as well. And so those who identify with Jesus should expect a life of sacrifice. Indeed, when we look in verse 9, they should expect that that some of these things are going to happen, are going to come from the outside that would try to pull them away from following after Jesus. He says that they are to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Diverse and strange. There's a variety of them. We don't want to think about this as like a, a restaurant that only serves one dish. This is Golden Corral. Strange teachings, right? They, lots of variety, very diverse. They're putting lots out there to attract and to appeal to lots of different people. You've got your, your fried stuff here. You've got your salads over here. You've got seafood. You've got everything is available there, plus the dessert bars full of everything as well. Like it's all placed out there to appeal and attract many people. That's what diverse teachings are, strange teachings. And, and what these teachings are is that they're, they're ever-changing, They're completely unsteady. They're not solid at all. You can't rely upon them. They'll change as the wind changes. And so they're they're always offering, like, here's a new discovery that we've made. Here's a fresh idea that no one's ever had before. Here's a method for doing things that that we need to work that will be perfect for us. Here's a new vision. In all of these things, if you you hear that kind of stuff, I'm not saying that none of that can be true, but beware. And when we offer, when we're offered new discoveries, new methods, new visions, those that make you think about the 2,000 years of Christians that have gone before us. Perhaps they were under-resourced. They didn't know how to follow Jesus. No, I don't think that's the case. I think offering those new kinds of things sharply contrasts what we saw in verse 8 of a Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He isn't strange. He's known, and he's been known, and he's been the same. And so Christians don't need this ever-shifting diet, but they need solid food of an ancient gospel. God's people, churches, even leaders, as we talk about them in verse 7 and continuing in verse 8, they shouldn't be trying to do new things specifically, but ancient things faithfully. Not with new methods, but with biblical methods. Following the faithful examples that have been set for them. Not with new vision, but with the Bible's vision. Not by uncovering something new, but by rediscovering something ancient. Christ and his gospel. I listen to, and I'd commend to you, these resources, both on their website and their podcast, the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition says, every, every time before their podcast, they say, you're listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that gets at it, right? That's, that's what we want. We want to renew the contemporary church, the church now, but not with something new, but the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. God's people don't need diverse and strange teaching. They need to be renewed in ancient teaching, in an ancient gospel. We are to know Jesus, that he is the eternal, unchanging one, and in knowing him, we're kept from being tossed and led away by diverse and strange teachings because that's the teaching we want. We want to know Christ. You know, he's not new. He's been around from eternity past until now. We want to know him more. So we're kept from these diverse and strange teaching. When we're captured by the eternal, unchanging one, it kind of spoils our taste for the diverse teachings, the strange teachings that are laid out to appeal to us. False teaching from false teachers, though, has always been a constant threat to the people of God. It's going to be a constant threat for the people of God until Christ returns. We don't need to be ignorant of Satan's designs, and one of his designs is diverse and strange and false teachings placed in front of God's people. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul calls the Ephesian elders out to himself to to kind of strengthen them, to encourage them as he sees them for the last time, he says, wolves are going to come. 
These are going to be men who are going to be speaking twisted things to draw away disciples. It's not a new strategy. Paul knew it was coming. Right? He, he says to the Galatians, right? he writes to the churches of Galatia, the area of Galatia, and he warns them there's a false gospel out there, and if anybody comes and preaches another gospel, then you need to not listen to them. Let them be anathema. He writes to Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles, and he's constantly bringing up this idea of false teaching and false teachers, warning these pastors, telling them how to deal with this kind of false teaching in Hebrews. They had to be warned, right? Because there was false teaching and it was luring some away. And they were starting to go down this path. And he says, don't go that direction. You don't need to follow that. God's people need to be warned. We need to know about these false teachings and we need to be presented with objective truth. Truth that we could stack up against anything. We need God's word. That's the best way to combat false and strange and diverse teachings and the temptation to be led away by them is to have objective truth presented to us that we might know it. We need to be strengthened, and that is by by grace. And that's what he says in verse 9. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So at least part of the strange and diverse teachings that some of these Christians that this letter goes to was that there was something going on with food and meals that they needed to know about. And the author is really, really clear from the start that these foods are of no, no value to those who eat of them. Now surely food can strengthen the physical body, but, but it doesn't hit the heart. That's the idea that he's getting at here. And so, and so we don't know exactly what all this strange and diverse teaching was, but we, we kind of have it framed out for us here, that this teaching was claiming in, in some way to, to strengthen hearts, to, to grant grace, to, to benefit those who would take part of these, this food or a certain meal maybe. So spiritual and religious value is being attached to either a, a ritual meal or certain kinds of food, and they were wrongly attaching that value to it, says the author. Now, ritual meals were, of course, a, a regular practice under the Old Covenant, part of Jewish life. You, th- you think about meals like the Passover, it was a ritual meal that they were to take part in. They were a regular practice of pagans as well. They had all sorts of ritual meals that would claim to grant them greater access to God, maybe greater favor with God. I mean, there's all sorts of ritual meals, so that we don't know the context. Perhaps it's, they're being pulled by, by Jewish context that, to, to come and take part in some of the Jewish meals. Perhaps they're being pulled by these pagan contexts. We, we don't know for sure, because we don't know the audience. We don't even know who wrote it. We're not even sure where it went. We don't know any of that stuff. But here's what we do know, is that whatever either one of these things that is going on, spiritual value is being attached these foods and this meal and that they're not to follow that and so under the old covenant there were all these food laws and ritual meals but they were temporary and they couldn't sanctify they couldn't do what they wanted them to do they 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 couldn't purify the people and so they were made obsolete when Jesus came and brought greater purification to keep following them I think this is clear from the book of Hebrews to keep following that old covenant system is to miss the Old Covenant's point, that it's pointing forward to something greater and better in Jesus, and how Jesus both fulfilled those things and is greater than those things. But in the pagan situation, there there were meat offered offered to idols. You see that in the book of Corinthians. They had some ceremonies and, and religious meals that they had, and perhaps they were offering the same thing to cleanse people, to give them greater access to God, greater favor with God. All those things could have been part of it. 
So it seems that the food, certain foods or meals were being presented to these Christians as helpful, maybe even necessary for them to take part in. And verse 9 makes really, really clear, food is of no benefit spiritually. Now that is, to, its, to your greatest spiritual need, food can't impact. It needs, we need something else, only grace can impact what we need impacted. Only grace, he says, strengthens the heart. To nourish one's spiritual life, grace is needed, not a meal or a certain food. One commentator says it really well when he says, you need grace in the heart, not a special type of food in the stomach. And I think that the issue here in verse 9 is actually realizing the greatest need that we have. What is our greatest need? It's not external. It's internal. And it's so far in that, that food can't even touch it. It's, it's so far in that only grace can get after it. The problem is that we have impure, rebellious, sinful hearts. Now, if the problem is less than that, then maybe food and a meal might work. and Put us in a good mood and, and perhaps it would help us to seek the Lord. But if the problem is a sinful, rebellious, impure heart, then foods and meals even if they're said to have spiritual value, cannot go there. They can't strengthen the heart. They can't bring grace to the heart. And so if there is a teaching, a strange and diverse teaching, that claims to you that these certain foods or this certain meal has spiritual value, can strengthen you, can strengthen your heart, then I would say choose Jesus. Feast upon him. Superfoods, no matter how many there are, how great they are, cannot secure eternal redemption. They can't strengthen sinful hearts. Grace from an eternal unchanging great high priest is what we need. Paul reminds of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. It will not commend us to God. I don't care how awesome your diet is, it does not commend you to God. And it's not the only time that Paul talks about food. It seems like it's this recurring thing. So like food's important to everybody universally. Perhaps you'd agree. So he has to remind them again, Romans chapter 14. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. He has to repeat it because there are strange and diverse teachings that are claiming spiritual value if you eat and drink a certain way or if you eat and drink certain foods and maybe you'd be a greater Christian. Perhaps you'd be following God, have greater access to him. He'd forgive you more. He might like you more if you had all these things. And Paul has to remind him over and over again, as the author of Hebrews does too, that those are of no benefit of those who eat. And so there are repeated attempts to attach religious and spiritual value to food that have to be rejected and they're off. Because we read, as we continue on in Hebrews 13, verse 10, we have a different altar. Verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So maybe the charge was these Christians, hey, you, you guys don't even have an altar, a place of worship. You don't even have a sacrifice that you're offering to your God. You, you, you have no kind of religious activity. What are you supposed to be doing? What are you all about? We, we can't tell. So maybe you don't have a real religion, or maybe at least it's lesser than our religion. Where's your temple? Where's your holy place? Where's your religious practice? Where are your sacrifices? Now, if some of the audience, and we think that perhaps this is true, that some of the audience had been, been converted out of Judaism, then I think that that argument would have cut pretty deeply and was likely pretty compelling. They had been used to practicing sacrificial Life, they'd been used to going to the temple to worship and honor God and, and perform their religious acts. And so maybe they're starting to think about this Christianity like with the, 
the, the persecution coming in, the pain and the suffering that they're facing, and this kind of lack of practical sacrifice and going to the temple there, it may have been a compelling argument for saying, hey, why don't you just come back to this? Perhaps your suffering would cease and maybe you'd start practicing religion as it's meant to be practiced. But I think the author resounds pretty clearly here. He says, no, we, we do have an altar, actually. We have a better altar. And he says that this is not an altar for all who say they're part of the people of God. It's an altar for certain people who are following after Jesus. See, those who rely on the old covenant system, which is what he alludes to in verse 10, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's alluding to the old covenant system. He says those who rely on that have no access to this altar. They don't have atonement for their sin. They can't benefit from this altar. So what is this altar that we're talking about? He goes on to tell us, I think, and help us figure out. He says in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So it seems as if all right, the author is leaving food behind and he starts to compare. All right, here's our altar, and he compares the Day of Atonement with the cross of Christ, with Jesus' death. So on the Day of Atonement, under the Old Covenant, a substitutionary sacrifice was made. They would sacrifice, uh, they would make a sacrifice so that the great high priest, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of that sacrifice. But then that sacrifice... Some sacrifices the priest would have a, a portion, a right to the portion of. That was one that they didn't. Uh, the sacrifice was taken outside the camp and burned. And so on the day of atonement, as the sacrifice was brought, that purified, that atoned for the sin of the people and the sin of the priest, it, it worked so that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and then it was burned outside. It purified, it atoned, and then was burned outside the camp. And here... What the author does is suggest a, a significant parallel with the death of Jesus and the Day of Atonement and that sacrifice. So he says that Jesus also suffered, and he suffered outside the camp, which outside the camp would have been an unclean, an unholy place. He suffered outside the camp on a cross. And yet we see that his sacrifice outside the camp was a sacrifice that was effective, was one that actually worked for the people of God. He sanctifies as the Day of Atonement. That was something that was to bring sanctification to the people and to the priest. Jesus' sacrifice outside the gate sanctifies the people. By his death, he sanctifies people. But where does he do it? It wasn't at the holy place. It wasn't in the temple. It wasn't even inside the city. It was outside the gate. And so Jesus, who is being portrayed over and over again in the book of Hebrews as offering a greater sacrifice that can offer greater redemption, greater purification, is a sacrifice that wasn't attached to, in location, the Holy of Holies, the temple, even the city. It was outside the gates. And so Jesus, as the better sacrifice, offers a better purification than any sacrifice made in the camp. So one commentator says this, that suffering outside the city gates... He was cast outside the protective canopy of the law. In his trial and what followed, he endured not only the full sanction of the Jewish law, but also much more. The law prescribed death. But by suffering outside the camp in the place where sacrifices were burned up completely, Jesus was made to suffer as one upon whom the law could, only, could exact only so much, as one ultimately delivers up to a judgment and an ordeal that surpassed all the powers of the law, to the fierce exaction 
of divine wrath. All right, so translation is that Jesus became sin. He became sin for us. And he suffered and died even greater than just what the law would have prescribed because his suffering as this greater sacrifice was greater. He endured something greater than just the law itself. And because he does, he offers something more pure and greater purification than the law itself could offer to people. He offers a greater purification, a purification that comes out outside of and apart from a holy place and the old covenant system itself. His greater sacrifice outside the camp is offering a purification that goes much further than any other purification could in the Old Covenant. It purifies all the way down to a guilty conscience, the book of Hebrews says. His greater sacrifice makes purification, makes any sort of purification that could be offered at the temple with any other possible sacrifice null and void, not necessary any longer. There is no need for any altar other than that altar outside the gate, the cross of Christ. There is no need for any sacrifice other than the sacrifice that was made on that altar, the Lamb of God, Christ himself on the cross. He came, he suffered and died to extend out to all, Jews and non-Jews, purification that went further than any purification could in the Old Covenant. He extends out to all of us as one who had to suffer outside the camp, the unholy, the unrighteous place where all the sinners are. He came to suffer and die out there that he might extend out to all people eternal redemption. And so what we see is the sanctification, access to God, purification before God as part of God's people is found apart from animal sacrifices, apart from holy places, apart from food and meals. It's found in the great high priest, Jesus Christ. This reality sets up a really big therefore in verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. To have part in the altar of Christ, the Christian altar, to have part in the sacrifice of Christ, the redemption that Christ has earned, the sanctification that he gives, one has to go to Jesus. It's only found in him. Redemption, purification, access to God, all found in Christ. You have to go to Jesus, and in going to Jesus, you bear his reproach. Jesus came as this great high priest who, who he sitting at the throne above, decided that he was going to seek and save the lost, took on flesh and came down after us that we might go to him outside the camp where he suffered, where he died, and find him and find in him eternal redemption and sanctification in his blood. To bear his reproach means to fully identify with him. And who was Jesus? He was one who was crucified, which is the the utmost way to say that you have defeated somebody in that time. If you wanted to show that somebody had lost and that they were an enemy of the state and a loser, you crucified them. If you wanted to say that they were the worst of the worst, the most despised and rejected of people, you would crucify them. If you wanted to do it, and if you wanted to do it even more exalted than that for a Jew, you'd put it outside the camp, outside the gates, in an unholy place. Indeed, that's where Jesus went. He was crucified outside. He was shamed. He was despised and rejected by men. As much as anyone could be despised and rejected, he was. Not just by Jews, but by non-Jews as well. Everyone was in on it. So to go to him 
and to bear his reproach is to then associate with all those things. And to say that that's actually the one you're following and that that's actually your savior and that that's actually your king, the one that was crucified and shamed and rejected, humiliated. So that's, that's the one we follow. It's to bear his reproach by identifying with all of those things. And so part of finding redemption at the cross means that you're going to take up your own cross. That you yourself are going to say, I'm, I'm crucifying myself, my life, my values, my goals, my desires, all those things that I might take up his. It means no longer being aligned with your old way of life. Even if your old way of life was deeply rooted in religious practices and, and sacrifices and sacrificial meals and, and trying to seek after God. It means you're crucified of those things because you found in Christ something far greater. It means not shrinking back when you're suffering. Like in Hebrews chapter 10, having that kind of mindset, it says in verse 32 that you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treated, so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. To bear the reproach of Christ means to identify with those who've been in prison, to accept the plundering of your goods, to put yourself in front of reproach and affliction and to suffer great things. It means not leaving the race when you think that maybe there's a a better, more comfortable, easier, more appealing path that might be in front of you like Moses in Hebrews 11. Verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated. When you choose to follow Christ, you might be choosing to be mistreated. Chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There is sacrifice in following and identifying with Jesus. There is sacrifice with going outside the camp to Jesus to find redemption. One has to lose their life to get it. This is what Jesus requires of us. You want to follow after me? You lay down your life. You bear my reproach. But in doing this, Jesus also promises that in losing your life for his sake, you also gain your life. You get it. Yeah, there's reproach in going outside the camp to identify with Jesus, but there's also redemption there. It's the only place eternal redemption is actually offered. And the, the ones we heard about in chapter 10 as they were suffering in Moses in chapter 11, along with all the others that we saw in chapter 11, they, they bore that reproach and they endured and they did it by, by a certain means. They, they looked ahead. They looked forward to something. In verse 14 in chapter 13, I think sums up what they were looking forward to. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So going to Jesus means laying down your life and and everything that you could have and and could want to have here. Now you're saying, I'm laying that down. If I don't get it, I don't get it because I'm following after Christ. I'm looking forward to what's after. Going to Jesus means receiving our identity fully in him. And that means we're embracing our status that this isn't our home, that we're exiles and sojourners and strangers here, that we've got a home that we're waiting for. And so we're not going to set up permanent residence here. It means our residence is in heaven. 
And that the one that we are following after said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to get ready. And when I'm ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be there along with me. And that he will come get us soon. So we, we recognize when we live in the, the life that we're saying that this isn't our permanent home. And, and we shouldn't look for it to be our permanent home. We're not looking for ultimate home here. We're not looking for ultimate comfort here. We're not looking for all those, all those things that we think are ultimate. We're not looking for them here. We're seeking a city that is to come. We're seeking a city that is above. Jonathan Edwards said that he, he longed for eternity to be stamped on his eyeballs. That's what verse 14 is about. We don't have a lasting city here. We're, we're seeking that's to come. And so we, we have this eternity stamped on our eyes and we're looking at everything through that lens. I can't help but think of Terminator when I think of that. You, you, maybe this is too old, it's been a while, but Terminator, you know, he's this robot and he, he sees, you know, when you see a vision through him, he's like, uh, main target there and don't worry about this guy over here. And like, Every robot does that, right? You see their vision, they scan and assess everything that they're looking at. And, and what I'm picking up is like, we need to scan and look at everything in light of eternity and say, oh, that's not worth my time. Uh, that scanned, assessed, uh, I need to give myself to that. That will last that's what it is to have eternity stamped on your eyeballs. One author says that when the heart of a man has nothing to do but to be busy about creature comforts, every little thing troubles him. But when the heart is taken up with the weighty things of eternity, with the great things of eternal life, the things of here below that disquieted it before are things now of no consequence to him in comparison with the other. How things fall out here is not much regarded by him if the one thing that is necessary is provided for. You know, the city to come, the, the one thing necessary for us to take part in that city, to be residents, to be citizens of that city, has been provided for us. It, it actually sits safe and secure behind the veil right now. It's our sure and steady anchor of our souls. And so now, because that has been provided for, we don't need to be disquieted, as he says, by all the things here and now. Oh, I long for that to be true of me, that the things here below that disquieted me before are things that are now of no consequence in comparison to the one thing that we already have provided for us that's necessary, the cities to come. We can endure then reproach, suffering, plundering of our property, the changing of leaderships, the assault from the enemy that seeks to lead us away from the eternal unchanging Christ. We can endure all of those things because none of this stuff here is necessary. All that we need has been provided for us in Christ. That city that he has gone to to prepare for us is, gonna, is going to come. And those who would lay down their lives so that they might find it in Christ are the ones that are going to be its citizens. And so the citizens of the city, then, they, they start getting active. This is what Hebrews moves to. The city whose founder is God are, are not just sacrificing their lives. They can sacrifice in another way. We look in verse 15. So they do have an altar, and they do have sacrifices to make. And here's the sacrifice that's listed. Verse 15, he says, Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So there is a sacrifice still to be made for believers. There's, there's a sacrifice for us to make. There's a bull for us to offer up to God. It's not a bull of the herd. It's a bull of the mouth. 
It's your lips offering up praise and thanksgiving to God. The, the ceremony of sacrifice for believers, for the redeemed, is to offer up the sacrificial bull of praise to God. One author says that to give praise to God is to acknowledge the truth that without him we have nothing and are nothing. It's, it's, it's offering up and even declaring, publicly declaring, that without God we are nothing. There's no salvation apart from Christ, and we're thankful that he has come and provided it for us, and so we offer this declaration up to him. And so lips that have been sanctified by the blood of Christ that was shed for them publicly acknowledge and praise him. That's what they do. That's the sacrifice that they give. And this sacrifice is for individuals, no doubt. Like you are to be, as an individual, offering up the sacrifice of praise to God. But the the exhortation here is to the congregation. You are to be offering up the sacrifice of praise. We are to be offering up a sacrifice of praise unto God. In other words, you can't obey this by yourself only. Apart from the gathering of believers, you can't obey this. You have to do this together. There's a public declaration that we make as a church, as the people of God, that we are to offer up unto God, that I can't do just by myself. And the sacrifice of praise then should be central to the spiritual life of any individual, but also any church. When we assemble together, that's what the church is, the assembly of the people of God. It's more than that, but not less than that. When we assemble then, this is This is what we're taking part in. Uh, We're offering up a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is a sacrifice of our praise to God. All believers should be taking part of that. And so this author continues that the New Testament confirms that praise is essential to the spiritual life and therefore to the life of the church. The church exists to show forth praise to God. Indeed, when worshipers, that's all of us, when worshipers come to, to the assembly to worship, Apart from whatever they expect to receive, there's something to be given. Praise to God. Indeed, this is confirmed a few pages over in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? Why? That you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, the the people of God, are to proclaim God's excellencies because he has called you out of darkness and into light. And that salvation, that redemption that he has bought for us on our behalf then starts bearing fruit in our lips. And they start declaring publicly and with one another that Christ is our salvation, that he is our redemption. And we start saying, look at all the excellencies of this God that has saved us. That's what we do together. Years ago, I left a service, a church service on a Sunday morning. This was in a state far away from here, feeling more like I was just part of an audience than a worshiper. Perhaps that's not hard for you guys to believe these days because there's all sorts of things that would make someone feel like they're part of an audience when they go to church with flashing stage lights and the the lights out in the house are very low and loud music and unique different things going on the stage where it's almost like a performance. But I'm not not even going to rail against any of that right now. Probably done that before. I'll probably do it again. That's not my point. This place had no special lights. They had no loud sounds at all. They sang traditional hymns. They didn't have cutting-edge techniques. The, the pastor, the preacher, he wasn't specifically cool. He didn't have a hip style. 
None of that was true. What it had, or at least the impression that I got as being a part of that people, was, uh, was the impression that people were content to be passive. What it had was a people gathered who were okay with being spectators, with being just part of the audience, with, with just consuming whatever was put in front of them. And what strikes me as I reflect on that is how easy it is for any church, no matter what they have or don't have, to kind of downshift into that. Or for the people who attend church to have that as their default mindset. The assembly of God's people is not a place of passivity, not even a place of consumption. It's a place of sacrifice. He says there's a sacrifice for us to make. As we gather together, we are to be sacrificing. We're not consuming. We're not just here to consume or be a part of stuff. We're not to be passive. We're to be actually sacrificing. We're not simply to be part of an audience that consumes a performance or whatever is put in front of us. Believers are to gather to sacrifice, which contains no passivity. We're to offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. There might be some receiving in our services, but it certainly shouldn't be all that's happening. Think of all the commands just in Hebrews alone that you would be disobeying if you ignored what we're saying. If you didn't want to, if you wanted to be passive, you would be ignoring several commands just in the book of Hebrews alone. That when you gather together, you need to be exhorting each other, encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near, stirring one another up to love and good works, offering up a sacrifice of praise. If we came to be passive and just consume and be part of the audience, then we're ignoring several commands just in the book of Hebrews alone. God's people are to assemble. That's what the church does. If it doesn't assemble, it's not a church. But when they do, they are to offer up to God together a sacrifice of praise. We are to be a people that are sacrificing Not bulls and lambs, but our mouths are to be publicly declaring the greatness and excellencies of our God. But there's one final sacrifice in this passage that believers are to make, and that's a sacrifice for others. If you look in verse 16, he says, the the author says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So clearly, again, verse 15 isn't just for individuals, not just an individual command, because here he turns around and follows it up with sacrifices that we are to make for one another. If you're by yourself offering up a sacrifice of praise, I don't know how verse 16 is going to land. It doesn't have a spot. But if this is a congregational exhortation, verse 15 and verse 16, then we are to be sacrificing when we come together for others. In offering up a sacrifice of praise, there's an overflow from that. We're we're so thankful for what God has done, that he's moved us from from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that we want to offer up to God this sacrifice of praise, and then we want to start doing things for other people. Those always go together. You see this in the book of Acts so beautifully in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, this is right after Pentecost. The gospel is just going out, and it hits fresh on several ears, and people believe, and here's what it says of them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And here's what this awe and community and fellowship does for them. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So all came over them, 
And it resulted in not just them gathering together to hear God's word, to to revel in what God had done for them, to join with God's people. It also started overflowing in them to sacrifice for one another. It resulted in praise, but it also resulted in sacrifice to other people. Here's a display of the, the two great commandments of which all the law and commandments hold. You love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had all in their hearts. And then you love neighbors. You love people as you love yourself. Those are always going together. They don't go separately. If you have one, you have the other. You can't love others the way they're meant to be loved apart from the love of God. And you cannot love God and not love others. That's repeated all throughout the scripture Here it goes beautifully together. They are in awe of God and they just started sacrificing, selling and distributing. Who has a need? I'd like to meet that. Can't have one without the other. And I think that's also understood in the book of Hebrews in in verse 16 when he says, For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So one who wants to please God, who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength... Then all of a sudden wants to do whatever would please God. And there are some sacrifices that please God. And one of those sacrifices is doing good and sharing with others. That pleases God. And so no matter what you think about others, I think God will rewire that and change that as you go along. But no matter what you think of them, if you want to please God, you're going to start doing those things to others. They're connected. And so as those people who have gone to Jesus outside the camp and and identified with him, given up their lives that they might find life in Christ and bore his reproach. As those who have been sanctified and and as those sanctified offering up sacrifices of praise, we are to offer up sacrifices to and by doing good to others and sharing what we have with others. And the applications for this are, are endless, but we can just think about our gathering here. Our gathering itself offers so many opportunities for us to do this. When we lay down our own preferences for the sake of others. We're not concerned about how my preference getting prevalence in the church because I'm concerned about the good of others. I can lay down my life and sacrifice for the good of others by by waking up early on Sunday morning, cooking a meal, bringing it next week so that we can all share it at first Sunday lunch. That is sharing what you have with others, sacrificing what you have with others in our normal gathering. You don't even have to add another gathering to that. It's what we normally do. It's our normal rhythm. You can share what you have with others. You can do good unto others by saying, you know what? I'm a warm body. I can keep a kid alive for 45 minutes while this rambling preaching goes on. I'll sign up to serve in the nursery. Because we need more people that are willing to share what they have with others. To do good unto others, to say, you know what, kids are hard to have in the service sometimes, and especially the younger they get. I want some parents to hear the word, so I'll share what I have. It's a normal gathering. All right, we can, we can expand it. How about outside this gathering? You could host a home group. You could just start having people in your home with, without anybody telling you to do it at all. You say, I love people. Let's just have them over and just start feeding them food. Food's important. It's over and in Scripture over and over again. We're not saying it's attached to spiritual value, but it's like, hey, it gets you around the table so I can do good to you and share some good that I have with you. That's maybe one of my favorite ways you can share with me good food, no problem. And here's the thing, we could go on and on and on. All these things, serving nursery, bringing a meal, you know, taking meals to new mothers, all these things, they, they seem so small, don't they? But, but when done with love for God and love for others, here's what verse 16 says. These sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
not only does he see them, but he's actually pleased by them. He, he delights in them. He loves it when his people start doing these things. Like he, he likes it. He delights when we get together and we start considering one another. And we sacrifice for one another. And we think about others' needs above our own. And we start doing good and sharing what we have with others. God delights in those things. And so what God does is he's getting all the, the glory and delighting in our sacrifices is that he keeps fueling us to keep offering these sacrifices. The, the tank never gets on empty because one is already sacrificed for us. And so we keep thinking of him and wanting to offer sacrifices of praise to him and that keeps fueling our tank to then sacrifice for the good of others which pleases God, which again keeps us going because we love this God. It's to have this heart that's strengthened by grace that keeps us sacrificing over and over and over again because we remember what Christ has done for us. So the sacrifices from God's people that are pleasing to God are sustained then by God's grace. So all that he asks, he provides. Everything God wants us to sacrifice, he's given to us. So maybe that helps. Verse 9, let's not be led away by strange and diverse teachings. This, this God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever is really good. He offers out to us really good things. And so yes, the, the Christian life is a life of sacrifice through and through. But as we live a life of sacrifice, we do this because we have one who's been sacrificed for us. And he wants us to remember his sacrifice. He wants us, when we gather, to offer up the sacrifice of pray by, praise by remembering his sacrifice for us. And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We remember that Christ sacrificed for us. We remember his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. We remember that we have a place in that city that is to come, not because we have earned it or because we've had certain food or haven't had certain food or kept the right kind of diet, but because Jesus offered out to us through his sacrifice eternal redemption. We have a place because of what he has done. And so if you're a believer, we'd encourage you to offer up the sacrifice of praise by coming forward to the table that Christ has laid before you and being reminded of his sacrifice, the sacrifice that strengthens your heart, that continues to fuel you that you might be a sacrifice to him and to others. If you're not a believer, we'd encourage you not to take this meal. Stay seated and take Christ instead. Believe in Jesus, and then he will get you ready to receive the city that is to come. If you don't know what it means to believe in Jesus, or to follow Christ, please ask a believer, ask one of us pastors. We'd be happy to share with you what it means to love and follow Jesus and go to him outside the camp. But don't take this meal. This is for believers. Believers, be encouraged by what Christ has done. And then use that encouragement as fuel to continue to sacrifice your life and offer sacrifice of praise to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the people of God. Thank you for the gathering of this people. And we pray that we would collectively offer up a sacrifice of praise that would be pleasing in your sight. That we would be a people known for sacrifice, known for laying our lives down that we might find it in Christ, known for laying our lives down that others might have what we have in you. God, may we, we be a people that it's just evident that we love one another because we keep laying down our own preferences, our own desires, our own good so that others might have, so that others might have good. God, I pray then, what I'm asking is that in us, you would display your love, your sacrifice in and through this people, this church. God, thank you for sacrificing for us and providing a way for us to be citizens of the city that is to come. May it come soon for your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.